You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. Welcome to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. This is York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, Texas bound on a full basketball scholarship, hitting the road in a luxury car, and J.P. Sachs. But first, the current state of COVID-19 affairs, if you will, here in our province, the vaccine supply, the rollout, the suspension of AstraZeneca as a first shot, the broadening of vaccine eligibility to include much younger Ontarians, the possible mixing of vaccines for the booster shot, the declining case numbers, but worst of all, still dozens of deaths each and every day from this virus. Dr. Samantha Hill is the president of the Ontario Medical Association. She joins us now on the feed. Thank you, doctor, for giving us your time. Always a pleasure to speak with you. How important is it that the vaccine rollout is now fast and furious? Oh, it is so important that the vaccine rollout be fast and furious. The vaccine rollout is what is getting us out of the third wave, along with our public health measures of stay-at-home order and masking and all those things, but it is the vaccine rollout and the vaccines that will keep us from a fourth wave. And even as I say that, I cringe because I don't know that any of us mentally can tolerate the idea of a fourth wave, but we are currently at almost 50% of Canadians vaccinated, and that is a remarkable landmark. We are getting into those numbers that possibly might be able to get us some degree of herd immunity or at the very least decreased community spread. And so the more people we can get vaccinated, that first dose particularly, but then finalizing the vaccine process with the second dose, the better our prospects are of never having to do this again. The fact that the eligibility age is much lower now, I'm looking at uh, as as young as 12 years of age, uh, and we may see that go even lower. What does that mean to you? I'm so excited that the eligibility age has dropped to 12-year-olds. We know that children have suffered disproportionately throughout the pandemic. We know that the migration to virtual school has been very challenging for them. But even more than that, the absence of social interactions, clubs, gyms, you know, soccer, those kinds of things, doesn't matter. The ability to get together with their friends has been devastating. And the idea that we are going to be able to protect everyone over the age of 12, and I really do hope soon everyone, period, will open up doors and regain us a sense of normality that honestly could not come a day too soon. Polling has shown that more and more Canadians are comfortable receiving the vaccine. Eight in 10 Canadians recently saying in a poll that they would be comfortable and they want to be vaccinated. Then came news about AstraZeneca, and in particular here in Ontario where it is paused as the first shot. Is that going to be a a wrinkle in the fabric of trying to get people vaccinated and wanting them to be vaccinated? I absolutely expect it will be a wrinkle, but you know what? It's just a wrinkle. People are going to pause and they're going to think about things again because at the end of the day, they're getting a lot of mixed information and they're getting a lot of information as it develops. And that is what science does. Science takes account of new facts and then refits the theory and tests it again. And so we, or the government, put a pause on AstraZeneca because the relative risk 
which is still really low. It's still like one in 60,000 or something like that of VIT and a blood clot suddenly wasn't as low as we thought it was when we thought it was one in 200,000. And we got that information at the same time as we got the information that so many people were vaccinated and that the stay-at-home order was working and that the prevalence in Ontario was dropping. And so suddenly that risk-benefit ratio changed a little bit. I don't think anyone who has received AstraZeneca has a need to worry about having made the right decision. I don't think anyone who encouraged someone to get an AstraZeneca vaccine needs to feel guilty or upset about that. The only thing I think we need to do is honor and applaud everyone who got into a line and got a jab in their arm and is part of the reason that we can look forward to a stay-at-home order ending and possibly a summer where maybe we can see beaches again. Hmm. How does the OMA feel about the CDC's decision and announcement in the United States that those who are fully vaccinated do not have to wear masks? How does that sit with you here in Ontario? So it's really interesting. As I said, people are really tired of restrictions being lifted and then put place again. People are also really tired of hearing different stories from different places, uh, different requirements, different restrictions, knowing that there are some countries that never had a lockdown, but then there are other countries that had mandatory testing every day. It's very hard in the global world that we live in to realize and to recognize how different every region, province, and country is. You know, the saying, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different boats, that very much applies here. There are different factors that play into the decisions and how they're made. And at the end of the day, I trust the various governments and the various decision-making boards to make the right decision for their communities, which is why we've encouraged things like regional vaccine rollout plans and local discretion for things like Directive 2. So what's really important to me about masking and not masking or reopening is that it be done in a way that is systematic, it be done in a way that is safe, and it be done with very clear guidelines that are as continuous as they can be as we move forward with better evidence. We need to give people predictability back, and we need to give people a sense of how they can do things like gathering while avoiding closely packed crowds so that we can protect everyone. Dr. Hill, you may not be able to answer this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. We're seeing numbers on the decline, but we're still seeing a steady number of deaths each and every day from the virus. Why is that still happening? So that's not at all surprising. We know that there are certain things that are early indicators and certain things that are late indicators. The early indicators include things like your positivity rate. Um, the late indicators include things like your ICU admit or submit indicators would be ICU rate. And then late indicators include things like the death rate. And the reason for that is because once you have COVID and are intubated in the ICU, you can struggle in the ICU for weeks before finally succumbing to the disease and complications thereof. And so we expect the death rate to come down several weeks after the ICU rate to come down, which usually comes down several weeks after the positivity rate comes down. And so none of that is surprising to me at all. Back to the vaccines, Dr. Hill. Uh, There are great studies going on everywhere uh, in terms of mixing vaccines uh, for the booster shot. And, And I guess it applies specifically to those who had their first shot, AstraZeneca. What is the OMA's position on the possibility of mixing for the booster shot? 
Absolutely. So at the end of the day, the OMA always defers to the experts, expert advice, expert opinions on these kinds of things. And so those types of decisions are going to have to come from our infectious disease experts, our pharmacology experts, the science advisory table, those kinds of groups. And it will depend on what those studies show. We're seeing interesting data, and maybe we will be in the very fortunate position that there will be multiple good options, just like there were when we had four different vaccines coming. You know, four good options is just fine by me. Dr. Samantha Hill, president of the Ontario Medical Association, thank you so much for giving us your time here on the feed. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Stay safe, be well, and get your vaccine. Well, the bumpy road in education has been very tough on everyone. Tina Cortez now with that story. Professor Sarah Barrett joins us from York University's Faculty of Education. Professor, thank you for your time. Thank you. Now, as you know, the school year is winding down for elementary and secondary school students. College and university students are back online for the summer session. Students and teachers across the board have had a year of challenges in terms of how and where they learn. Do you think these unusual times have long-term effects? I think that, yes. I mean, I think that there will be long-term effects, although they're not the sorts of effects that can't be dealt with, um, but they do have to be recognized if they're going to be dealt with. So do you get a sense that students are falling behind and can they recover? Students can always recover. Um, They're always resilient, but we have to create the situations that will allow them to do that. So, and, it, and it's on different levels. So certainly academically, um, we know that when students have a lot of disruption in their school year, it, it affects things. It slows them down because they have to deal with it all emotionally as well as academically. And so because this has been a system-wide disruption, I think that it's really important and fair for us to come up with solutions that are systemic as well. And what I mean by that is we should not be just creating ways for students individually to catch up, but instead recognize that everybody needs to catch up. Therefore, we need to create a situation where it's easy for everybody to do, that it doesn't have to be fall onto individual students' shoulders, and that we recognize that this is something that would affect any student, regardless of whether they have certain talents or not. This has to be about... We're in a situation, let's create ways for, for our children and for youth to catch up on what they've missed and also to settle in. They need time. What they need more than anything is time. Can you describe for us what one of those situations would look like in terms of making sure that they are catching up? Certainly. Um, and I'll start with the most obvious one, and that is standardized tests. Now, standardized tests, they can be used in different ways, of course. Um, the way Ontario uses it is we use it both for looking at whether or not the system is doing well, but also for how well individual students are doing. I think we have to get rid of the latter in this situation. Sure, we need to pay attention to how the system is doing, but I think for students, um, certainly we've given them, we've said, okay, you don't have to do the EQAO test, but that puts it on their shoulders. What we should say is no EQAO tests are going to affect students right now. And if we do them, we only, we're only using them to figure out how the system's doing, if we're going to run them at all. And it's a very subtle difference, but it's a way of taking the pressure off of the students 
and just giving, letting them know, look, we know that this has been hard on you and everybody's had different situations. You may have had people die. You may have had people ill. You're dealing with the anxiety that goes with all of this disruption. So if we're going to do this test, we're not going to make you pay for it if you didn't do well. We're going to use it just as information to know what we need to do. So that's just one example. Sounds like a great and productive example for sure. Do you think high school graduates, especially this year, will struggle in college and university? Yeah, I think the, the transition from high school to post-secondary is always difficult. It's a, it's a big change. Um, and a lot shifts from teachers being most accountable for you know, how the students are doing, like a lot of that accountability shifts to the students partly because they're older and partly because it's a different system. So I do think that a lot of students will struggle because their last couple of years in high school were so disrupted. And it, the most important thing we know for students academically when they go into post-secondary is that they have a firm foundation. And it's not so firm this time. Uh, a student who's gone through grade 11 and 12 in the last, you know, 2020 and this past academic year, um, their foundation isn't as firm as it could be. So it will be a struggle for them. So what do you say to parents and those students heading into college and university this fall? How do they stabilize that foundation? I think the first thing they have to do is give themselves a bit of a break um, and recognize that it's, it's not their fault. Uh, and secondly, they need to try to create routines for themselves a way for them to sort of feel safe, you know, socially and psychologically so that they can deal with the academics. But, again, it shouldn't all be on their shoulders. The post-secondary sector also has to recognize what's happened over the last two years and not expect that students are going to necessarily be at the same academic level as they might have been in years in the past and help them through that. Now, what about in terms of the social aspect that students at every level are missing and the impact on their mental mm-hmm. health, both students and teachers alike, I think? Yeah, absolutely. And the students, I mean, they need the, the lack of consistency has been really hard for them. But yes, there's a lot of loneliness. Um, students miss their friends. We know how important it is for teenagers to be with their peer group. It's, it's a huge part of their development. It's also a huge part of the development of younger kids, just just knowing how to socialize with each other. Even when they were in person, there was also the question of, well, with everybody masked and socially distanced, what effect does that have? And we know that research has shown that it does affect them. It affects their development. It affects them psychologically. It affects the teachers because, of course, especially with the younger students, They're used to having more physical contact with the students. As you know, if you've ever been around, say, a seven-year-old, they're all over you, right? Mm -hmm. They come, they give you hugs, they want to be with their friends, they're all over their friends. That's not happening because it's not safe right now. And so there is a lot of loneliness. There's a lack of physical connection that we know children need. It sounds like we're going to have a lot of work to do post-pandemic. What are you hearing from teachers what I'm hearing from teachers is that, well, it's the same as we're all saying, oh, can't wait for this to be over. Hmm. You know, it's, um, it's, there's a lot of frustration. I mean, of course, they're all doing their very best to compensate, and nothing's more important than their students remaining safe. Uh, but there is a lot of frustration. There's a lot of frustration knowing that they can't necessarily do all that they would normally do 
with their kids. There's also the added burden that, and this is really important, teachers, when they are trying to accommodate their students' interests, needs, challenges, talents, that requires long-term planning. And with all of these disruptions, being in person, not being in person, being in person, okay, now we're going to be online. Uh, they don't know how long it's going to be. That really disrupts the long-term planning. What that means is that the teachers have a very difficult time planning in ways that can accommodate all of the various needs of their students. And it is the case that a lot of students simply don't log in. They just decide, okay, I can't do it. And then the teachers lose those students in ways that they would never lose face-to-face. -face. I'm going to ask you to take out your crystal ball. What do you think the classroom will look like in September? Okay, I'm very hesitant to uh, make predictions. <laughs> I'm imagining that it'll be similar to what happened last fall, that we're going to try once again to get as many students face-to-face -face as possible because that is best for most students. Um, I think there'll still be social distancing because we aren't, we aren't quite at the point where vaccination rates are as high as we need them to be, and I'm not an epidemiologist, so I can't really you know, speak specifically on that. But I think it'll be similar to last year. What I'm hoping, though, is that the school boards and the ministry will have really thought through how we deal with it if we have to go back to online again, if that happens. I hope we don't have to go there, but we don't know. And I think we know enough now to recognize that some planning needs to happen. We need to do some logistical planning. And we really need to ask ourselves, okay, how are we going to help our students to catch up and do it on a systemic level and not leave it on the shoulders of individuals? Professor Barrett, thank you for your expertise. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much. After the break, a space for entrepreneurs and a basketball star heading to Texas. Those stories coming up. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. There's an entrepreneurial space in Markham. Why? Well, why not? Heather Seaman with the details. Attention innovators and entrepreneurs in York Region. There's a diverse and supportive community ready to help you take your business to the next level. Joining us is David Kwok, Associate Director of Entrepreneurship with YSpace, York University's Community Innovation Hub in Markham. Thanks for joining us, David. Thank you so much for having me, Heather. Tell us about YSpace Innovation Hub, where it's located, and what it's all about. We started in 2018, and we're located at the heart of downtown Markham. Um, if, if anyone is familiar with the area, we're at, right at Birchmount and Enterprise, right on top of the Good Life and the Cineplex. And we opened our, our doors in 2018 to really start having an understanding of what's going on in the community from an entrepreneurial uh, kind of standpoint and understanding what are the support systems that are needed. Uh, with a view of our campus coming to Markham in 2023, of course. Uh, we have a tech stream, a food and beverage stream, and then a women accelerator stream. So within the three different streams, we have custom programs for every single entrepreneur, um, just tailored to their needs. Um, and what we like to call ourselves is essentially a life cycle program, where we're really supporting entrepreneurs from ideation through some of our programs like Founders Fundamental and, and Idea Consultations and Venture Catalyst, 
all the way up to folks who are in market, scaling, and looking to grow rapidly through our three accelerator programs. Who's eligible to apply for the program, and who's the ideal candidate? Because we have 12 different programs, um, it really depends on kind of the stage that they're at. I would, um, but I would say it, it's really pretty open and broad. I would say the ones that are more open to everyone and for the community, um, and there's no kind of eligibility or criteria, is our Founders Fundamental, which is a um, 12-week educational course that we put on with the city of Markham around just helping people understand what it takes and the one-on-one Uh, in restarting their own business, whether it's a brick-and-mortar, a service-based company, or a technology company, and then idea consultations. And then some of our more kind of uh, programs that are more kind of tailored for specific entrepreneurs, like our food and beverage accelerator, um, those specific criteria are are things such as the company needs to be selling in stores stores already, so we ask that they have about 10 points of sales. That could be your mom-and-pop shops, your grocery stores, online, um, and then they're making about fifty to one hundred fifty thousand dollars in revenue um, in the previous year. And then our focus is really helping them scale up. Um, and then versus our Women Accelerator Program, um, Ella, where we have two different programs. So our Ascend program that just launched, it's really helping women in the service and product-based industry that has about fifty fifty thousand dollars in sales looking to scale. And that for that program, you have to be at least fifty percent to one hundred percent owned by women. So you're not necessarily looking for beginners here. Yeah, so our accelerators, we're looking for pretty established companies. I would say for beginners, it's kind of where our free introductory programs really, we're really are, are really there for. We try to have it pretty broad and free and open with an application because we really want to reduce the barriers to entry for entrepreneurship. What we realize is that a lot of the programs that exist for early entrepreneurship right now has a lot of barriers. There's a lot of requirements that, to be frank, some, some entrepreneurs just don't meet because of personal reasons, financial reasons, and all these different things. So for us, we wanted to create all of our early stage idea, idea kind of programming to be free and open to the community so that anyone can take advantage of them. So how has the program had to pivot during the pandemic? Great question. Yeah, during the pandemic, we had about probably a week to shift everything. Um, and so we had to really quickly understand how do we take everything online, make everything virtual to ensure the safety of everyone, but still create the same sense of community and cohesiveness. Because I think one of the things that we were really good at was cultivating a community of entrepreneurs, mentors, industry experts, investors to be in one space where we had our physical location in Markham, where they can all connect. The workshops and everything was pretty seamless through all the different resources that we had available to us, like Zoom and things like that. So we've really tried to emulate that community and cohesiveness that we've had in in person into the online world. What types of startups are you seeing these days, and has the pandemic influenced that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it it kind of spreads the gamut. On the food side, what we're seeing, I think the trend right now is alternative proteins or anything that's kind of healthy food, that that's kind of the trend we're seeing. Um, So examples of companies that we we worked with in the past cohort that are York region based. Um, Remix Snack is one of them that I can think of, which is like a dark chocolate bark thin, but they include bean protein in there. So you're getting some protein in your snacks. Um, and there's a zero grams of sugar oat milk from Vaughn. So we're seeing more of these functional kind of good for you type of food products is the trend we're seeing there. On the technology front, I would say it's um, the telehealth and, and that type of space has really blown up for us. Um, so, I think anything that has 
in need that has is digitizing the, the archaic systems that we've had, and we've seen a huge improvement there. What's your advice for anyone who may want to apply to the program? I understand there's a, a consultation process too. Um, personally, I say there's two ways out of the best first touch point. One is either going through idea consultations, whether you're a company that's just starting or you're someone at a growth stage and you just don't know what's the right fit. The consultations allow us to just sit down with you for half an hour. Um, it's a quick form that you fill out for, to get some basic information for us to understand the type of company you are. And then we can really assess and kind of give you advice to you, whether it's, it's, it's one of the 12 programs we have in-house or it's one of our partners who are a little bit more scale-friendly or even earlier stage for you. Then we can really focus and customize that program for you. Any final advice? Um, I think to anyone who's thinking about being an entrepreneur, I think the pandemic has allowed us to get to have some more free time for some of us, at least, um, where we might have some burning ideas in the back of our head. head and I think this is the perfect opportunity to explore those ideas. Um, hopefully, we can be a part of that journey for anyone within your region. We love to support. But if not, I know one of our partners would love to support as well. So I think, you know, if, if you have an idea, you don't know where to go or you just want to explore, feel free to reach out. We're more than happy to help with anyone. Thanks so much for joining us, David. Thank you so much for having me. For more information on York University's Y-Space Community Innovation Hub in Markham, check out the Programs and Services page at www.yspaceyu.ca. Our next stop takes us to the Markham Teen Arts Council. Karen Johnson with this creative bunch. The Markham Arts Council was one of those groups that was able to pivot during the pandemic and continue to create an outlet for our young people. Joining me are the co-chairs of the Markham Arts Council, Kimberly Yang and Sharon Sun. Thank you both for joining me, ladies. I appreciate it here on the feed today. Thank you so yeah, much. You. We really appreciate being invited. Well, I, I want to get right to it, and Kimberly, let's start with you. Now, for some of our listeners who are not familiar with the Markham Arts Council, can you tell us what the council is about and your mandate? Yeah, absolutely. So the Markham Teen Arts Council is the youth subdivision of the Mar Markham Arts Council and comprising of 17 wonderful and passionate high school students from the GTA. Together, we provide artistic teens within our community with a voice and valuable opportunities to explore the arts. And we do so by providing different events um, through incorporating various artistic disciplines, ranging from filmmaking to music to literature. And we host these events and programs just to make arts more accessible for youth, for them to explore their creativity and to embrace their individuality. As I, when I was reading Sharon the bio of of the Arts Council, you guys were talking about a stigma associated with the arts. Sharon, do you really think that exists? And if so, what is that stigma associated with the arts? Uh, I think for a lot of people in high school, especially with a sort of um, mentality within the JTA region, especially since obviously Toronto is sort of the hub of innovation in Canada and in Ontario that many people in high school are very career-focused, and many people don't think that you can actually make a career out of arts. Therefore, they are often encouraged to pursue careers that are more conventional, for example, STEM careers or careers in business, um, literacy, etc. So the stigma with arts is definitely that it's something that takes a backseat to other disciplines, but here at MTAC, we definitely believe that art is a gateway towards individualistic expression and developing one's idiosyncratic merits. So, so can we definitely think that the stigma... Sorry? Yeah, no, go on, continue. <laughs> 
Oh, it's very, yeah, the stigma of arts is definitely something that can be solved by making arts more accessible and just allowing people to go and have access to arts so they can become overall more well-rounded individuals. Great. Well, so Kimberly, do you think that you guys have changed people's perception about the arts? Uh, well, I like to hope that maybe the Marketing Arts Council could have made some sort of impact um, through hosting all of these events and um, these opportunities for them. Um, I hope that maybe it has opened people's eyes and allowed them to see that the arts really is more than just um, this side thing that people should not pay attention to, especially, you know, as our society grows. Um, we are paying less and less attention, putting less and less funding into the arts. So I hope that maybe, and I like to believe that we are making some sort of difference. Oh, I think you definitely are. But here I'm going to ask you, Sharon, how do you think you've changed your overall approach to what you do as a result of COVID-19? Yeah, so these events were definitely in person in the GTA region. For example, 24-Hour Film Challenge was a film festival that was screened in a movie theater in our city, Markham. Mm-hmm. So we definitely found the desire to pivot to serve people's needs and make art more versatile towards what people were feeling during the pandemic, whether that was holding workshops to uplift the mental health of youth in quarantine or just adapting our challenges to be virtual. So, for example, we held a virtual film festival as opposed to an in-person one. What we found more empowering than just holding our regular arts events was using arts as a means of social impact. Because a lot of people have incomes that have been slashed or are suffering from financial insecurity, we are actually quite interested in allowing youth to monetize their art and turning their artistic hobbies into a side hustle. So we have a webinar coming up with basically student speakers who are full-time students or were affiliated with being sort of young people or just like full-time students previously or very mm-hmm. um, recently. Basically, they're going to teach you how to monetize their side hobbies, whether it be how to monetize writing or how to monetize bullet journaling and calligraphy, even how to monetize dance. So we have a wide range of topics, basically, where you'll be able to learn how to turn those topics and those artistic hobbies into a side business. The tagline is turning crafts into cash. It's called the creative hustle, which is essentially what it is, a creative hustle. And yeah, basically, it covers business and arts, and it's our first webinar that you can find more information about on our website. I love that, and I love the fact that you're incorporating an art and a passion for all those artists out there and turning it into a profitable business. I love it. Now, I know a lot of our view, our listeners are very anxious to get in touch with you and find out more about your great organization. How can they get in touch with you and find out more about your programs? Uh, there are a lot of ways that they can do so. Uh, for one, we have our very own website. It's uh, www.markhamteenarts.org. Um, or they could find us on our social media, both on Instagram and on Facebook at Markham Teen Arts. So those are the two ways that they can, you know, better understand who our organization is and what we do. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Kimberly Yang and Sharon Sun, co-chairs of the executive team for 2021 of the Markham Arts Council, for joining us here on the feed and shining a brighter light on the arts during this pandemic. Thank you so much, ladies. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Jim Lang with a Brampton basketball star set to play in the NCAA. Basketball continues to grow in leaps and bounds in this country. And week after week, we're hearing amazing stories of local basketball players in the GTA, not just making a bid at uh, big in U sports, but in NCAA schools. The latest is Jasmine Sanga Brampton, who now is on his way to Texas A&M Corpus Christi, the men's basketball program to play center and power four. Jasmine, thank you for joining us in the feed and congratulations. 
Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. But I mean, it's a pleasure, and and I know I was I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. I'm in New Market, Aurora. When I moved there in '04, nine out of ten houses had a hockey net. Now it's basketball. When did basketball become your sport of choice as a kid and realize this is your passion? For me, it started all the way back in ninth grade. I know I know that's it's pretty late considering a lot of people start when they were young. But for me, ninth grade is where it all started, and I just never looked back, and I just kept going. Now, was there was there a Raptors player, an NBA player that really inspired you as you started to play and get more into basketball? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't an NBA player, but it was a local. It was a local guys who were making it, like Tyler Ennis, Anthony Bennett, Tristan Thompson, and when I seen those guys make it to the NBA and being from Brampton, and those guys being from Brampton, I just felt like. Like, it's possible, you know, like, it's it's possible to do things, and, and those guys really paved the way for me, and I'm just trying to follow their steps. Well, why Brampton, Jasmine? I think a lot of all the basketball in the GTA from Scarborough to York Region to the downtown area, Runnymede Collegiate, all those great programs, Brampton's producing some great players. Yeah, I think it just goes to show how, how hard the community works. And we have picked up from the older generation the work ethic. So I just feel like the newer generation, like like guys like me, just work extremely hard. And that and you just got to give thanks to the older generations for for just showing us how to do it. Tell us a bit about your journey. You're, you're playing in high school basketball in Brampton before you get to Pensacola Community College, before you get to Texas A&M. Was there an aha moment where you realize, hey, I, I think I'm pretty good at this? Yeah, in 10th grade, when I, I was just a decent player, but I had this breakout game. I played in a tournament in Maple in Vaughn, and I had about 40-something points, and it was just like I was on the island just playing by myself, and that's just how it felt. And right then and there, I felt like I could do this, and I, I have a real future. And from then on, I just took it very serious. I worked out every single day before and after practice, and... I just got to give thanks to my coaches who, who just believed in me and were there for me when I needed them. So how hard did Texas A&M Corpus Christi come at you? When did the recruiting process begin? The recruiting process has been, it's been very long. Uh, uh, they, came, they came late. Um, they came in, I want to say, April because the head coach just got the job there. But the, I was getting recruited by several different schools since the beginning of the year, September. Uh, of my sophomore year, and, and there were schools like Georgetown, Eastern Washington, Niagara was even recruiting me, um, IUPUI, and schools like that. But Texas A&M, Corpus Christi just felt right. Uh, the head coach is coming from Purdue University, and he, he has experience of, of coaching high-level guys, and he wants to take the team to the tournament, and he wants me to be a leader, so I'm just looking forward to that. Speaking with Jasmine Sang from Brampton, Ontario, now part of the Texas A&M Corpus Christi men's basketball program. Um, you're one of the few Sikh Canadians playing D1 basketball in the NCAA. We're seeing more South Asians and Sikh Canadians uh, playing hockey, playing football, playing basketball, playing sort of non-traditional South Asian sports. Um, it, the South Asian community, when it comes to athletics in the GTA in Canada, are really expanding the boundaries of what people thought, well, it's just soccer, it's cricket. It's not anymore. Yeah. And it, 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 I just want to give thanks to the community once again. And a lot of South Asians are, are, are immigrants and, what, and whatnot. And 
as you know, immigrants are, are very hardworking. They come to Canada with little to no money. So we just instilled their work ethic. And once we see a couple guys go far, like like Symboler, Vic Gill, and Manny Desange, guys like that who, who played at the Division One level, and now who are playing pro, you just it just goes to show that nothing is impossible and you could do it no matter what skin color you are. And I just want to continue inspiring others like how how big and Manny inspired me. Jasmine Sanger, the pride of Brampton, yes. uh, one of the next great wave of star basketball players to come out of Brampton, come out of the GTA. You know about Tristan Thompson, know the name Jasmine Sanger, Brampton, who's office to Texas A&M, Corpus Christi, who knows, maybe representing our national team someday or maybe representing an NBA team. Jasmine, thank you so much. Great to see what you've done and your work ethic and your attitude. You're going to go far, and thanks for joining us. When we come back, world fine cars. We get behind the wheel. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. So do you dream of buying a luxury car? Millions of Canadians do, and I'm one of them, but why? What is the appeal? Are they like a work of art? Do they hold their value? Or is it something straight from the heart? You've just got to have that dream come true on four wheels. World Fine Cars, located on Kipling, south of the Gardiner, is one of the premier luxury car dealers in North America. Eric Santos, the general manager and the proud son of the founder of World Fine Cars, joins us now on the feed. Welcome to the show, Eric. Hi, Ann. Thanks for having me. So right off the bat, would you please describe three of your most exciting cars that you have on the lot right now? Definitely. Uh, so right now, I, I'm going to describe three cars that I have that uh, I think really, you know, sets us apart from uh, the competition out there. So the first car, we have a, an absolutely stunning 2019 Aston Martin DB11 uh, Volante, which is a convertible with only 3,000 kilometers. So this is one of only two available in the country right now for sale. And this one we have currently listed for a $219,000 approximately $80,000 savings from buying a brand new one. Uh, the second car I have, it's going to be a, a little bit different than the first one, is an absolutely stunning 2003 Ford Mustang Mach 1. This is a, a very unique car because it shows just the, the depth of cars that we keep in stock. This car is a, it's a two-owner vehicle with only 56,000 kilometers. This is a true collector item that I think in the future could be worth double uh, what, it's, what it's selling for right now, and it's selling right now for only $32,800. And the third car I have, and being a, a big Porsche guy, we have an absolutely stunning 2011 Porsche 911 Turbo S Cabriolet. This car is finished in a beautiful white over blue and blue convertible top interior. The car is absolutely stunning, Ann. And this car has only got 28,000 kilometers from original. And this car is being listed for 142,800. An absolute showstopper. <laughs> I'm sold, uh, but you know, that's all talk for me, but great hearing that. So, Eric, on your website, it mentions that you have cars valued up to $500,000. What car is worth half a million dollars? 
Well, you know what? You'd be really surprised to know that there are quite a few cars on the market right now worth half a million dollars. I mean, whether you're buying a brand-new Lamborghini or a brand-new uh, Rolls-Royce, uh, uh, nowadays it's hard to buy a Rolls-Royce under $500,000. We just recently delivered a brand-new Rolls-Royce SUV, and it was $560,000. And uh, last month we delivered a, a Phantom, which was $700,000. Oh. So what constitutes a luxury car? What would be needed in order to be on the World Fine Cars lot? So for us, um, I think luxury is definitely a part of our brand, but it's not just luxury, And We deal with all different types of models of cars, so whether it be luxury, performance, uh, let's say classics, because not all classics are, are considered performance cars, right? So you do have some, you know, older Mercedes that uh, uh, definitely give you that luxury feel. Um, but then you got like performance cars like a Porsche where you have like a track-oriented cars like a GT3 or a GT3 RS, which definitely you don't want to drive on a daily basis because I think your, your teeth would be chattering every time uh, you got into the car, that's for sure. What about gender? Do you find more men are attracted to luxury vehicles than women? I think that's just, it's a bias thing, and I think that we've all kind of, it's in our minds that men are more attracted to, to sports cars, but I think more and more I see, uh, you know, women uh, really getting more involved in it and uh, just enjoying, you know, the, the different brands. And uh, I, I think it, for us, it definitely is more uh, males that, uh, you know, we sell to, but I, I see that changing. And before where it was like an 80-20 split, I think we're seeing more like a 60-40. So I see a lot more female buyers that, than I used to, that's for sure. How was it for you during the worst of the pandemic? Some might say that we're still in that part of it, but we have some optimism on the horizon that by maybe early June, some restrictions will be lifted. Did it put a a damper on your sales through the worst of the pandemic? For sure. And I I think for us in the the auto industry, uh, um, the worst of the pandemic was the beginning because there were so many unknown factors. Um, You know, at the beginning of of this pandemic, a lot of car dealerships actually closed down. Uh, We did not. We still stayed stayed open for our customers, and we just had uh, less staff in in the shop. But it it was so many unknowns. We really didn't know, you know, where where the market was going to go if, you know, if people were just not going to keep, you know, not start buying items, luxury items. They're just going to start, you know, they were worried about investing any sort of money in anything. But uh, funny enough, as the pandemic went on, uh, people realized this was just a new normal. And, in fact, luxury items became uh, very much sought after because people couldn't travel. So, you know, they wanted to do things that made them feel good domestically rather than, you know, being able to travel. They said, hey, let's upgrade our cars and, you know, do something we never got to do before. And uh, because they had that extra money laying around that they would have usually used on on traveling, they decided just to, uh, you know, upgrade their car and what have you. Tell me about the origins of World Fine Cars. So it's a family business, uh, obviously started by my father. And, you know, my father being, uh, you know, uh, new to the country when he was younger, you know, he grew up in Portugal and came over when he was about uh, 17 years old. He always had a passion for cars and uh, not only cars, but European cars in general. So back in 1983, uh, that was our year of inception, uh, you really didn't see European model cars uh, in Toronto. It was very much a domestic, you know, Ford, GM and my dad was one of the pioneers that uh, really saw value in European, especially used, 
uh, cars in the market, and I think that um, people really took took a hold of that. And you know, as you know today, you know, European luxury is definitely a, a huge market in Toronto. Let's go back to when you were five years old. How were you involved with your father's business? Oh, I was always involved, Dan. I mean, I spent almost every one of my Saturdays here at the dealership, whether it be awing over the cars or, you know, going with my dad to look at other cars to buy. I've always been involved in in the dealership and just been an enthusiast my entire life. You know, I've, I've, I've... been passionate about cars, whether that was bred into me or not. I mean, that, that'd be tough to say, but I can absolutely say that, you know, cars are my passion, and uh, I, I truly believe that this passion will live on. You know, even though we go to a, an electric uh, electric cars, you know, people feel like the passion will leave, but it will just change, you know. It, it, electric cars do bring that passion as well, you know, and as more electric cars come out and from different manufacturers, you'll see a different passion, you know, arise from that. There's an expression, you are what you drive. So who are you, Eric Santos? Uh, you know, I am so many different uh, car guys, you know. I'm not someone that would say I love Porsches and nothing else, so, you know, or I love Mercedes and nothing else. I love every genre. I think every genre has got such a uniqueness to it. You know, I love classic cars. I love muscle cars. I love European cars. So really it's hard to say. I, I would say I'm a, I'm a car guy through and through, <laughs> whether it be a, uh, you know, a Honda Civic from the early 90s or, you know, a brand-new Lamborghini. Everything uh, gets me going, that's for sure. And you're a diplomat as well. I got to tell you, Eric Santos, <laughs> the general manager of World Fine Cars. Thanks so much for being with us on the feed. The Juno Awards are set to hit the stage on June the 6th. Amber Pay and Christina Lavecchia with one of this year's nominees. If the world was ending, you'd come over right. The sky'd be falling and I'd hold you tight And there wouldn't be a reason why We would even have to say goodbye The 50th Annual Juno Awards are scheduled for Sunday, June 6th, right here in Toronto. Joining us is Canada's own J.P. Sachs, who not only recently scored a Grammy nomination, but is also a five-time nominee at this year's Juno Awards. His debut album, Dangerous Levels of Introspection, is set to be released on June 25th. Hi, JP. We know you have a really busy schedule with your new album coming out, so we really appreciate you taking the time. My absolute pleasure. Anything <laughs> for Canada. <laughs> all right! I love it! So, tell me then, how does all of this feel, all of this notoriety? Were you ready for this, this fame, the Grammys, the Junos? Was this your goal? Was this what you wanted to be and wanted to do? And Wow, there's so many ways I can answer that question. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take it way back. You know, in high school when I was a teenager, running around the GCA, playing every gig I possibly could. I, I could give you a schedule of the open mics from Monday to Sunday in, in the greater Toronto area when I was 18, 19 years old. So it's, it's been a long journey to this moment. And all of the progress that you just talked about has very much happened while we've been locked in our homes. It's in some ways been so extraordinarily special because I've got to take it in with the sense of peace because I'm not running around the world. I'm at home while all of this happens. So on the one hand, while it is totally a challenge to feel like a big shot getting told over Zoom that you've been nominated for things, there's also a silver lining of just you know, getting to be introspective about it all and getting to be reflective and you know not getting too caught up in it because 
know, I get to share it with people I love, and I get a little bit of a calm before the storm. Congratulations on your Grammy nomination, mm-hmm. first of all. Um, so now you, you got five Juno nominations <laughs> with the Single of the Year, Pop yeah. Album of the Year, Breakthrough Artist of the Year, Songwriter of the Year. We're so proud of you. We really feel Thank like you. you're one of us. Is it more important to be acknowledged by Canada for your accomplishments, or is it everybody, or is there just a little special place for us back here? It's definitely special in, in a way that nothing else is, because, you know, you said you're, you're, you're based in Woodbridge. Like, I went to high school with a bunch of kids from Woodbridge. There's something about getting to win and getting to, like, share that excitement with the people who were your family and your life and your community before anything even remotely like this ever happened. The distance between me as an 18-year-old, 17-year-old living in King City to me in Los Angeles getting nominated for things is is a lot, a lot greater of a distance than where my life was in the last couple of years in Los Angeles and where, where that community gets to see. And I guess this is a convoluted way of, I think, just that jump, that it feeling so grand is it, it, it's just a little different when i get to share it with people from back home because when i'm talking to people from woodbridge i start feeling a little bit like a teenager going to the country day school mm-hmm. trying to convince his family that being a musician isn't going to ruin my life <laughs> Love it. i let myself want you i let myself hope i let myself feel things i know that you some beautiful love songs over the past few years a little bit yours and if the world was ending just to name a few i love how there is a love story that came out of that collaboration with you and now girlfriend julia michaels being nominated with julia and experiencing this journey together how has it been it's incredible how many parts of my life have intertwined themselves into that song if the world is ending an earthquake was part of the uh the narrative because on July 4th, 2019, I was driving during one of the bigger earthquakes that happened since I've been in L.A., and I didn't feel it, but it reminded me of a lyric that I had written for a different song, actually, a song that isn't out yet called 430 in Toronto, which, side note, is actually track one on my upcoming album. But I'd written that as a lyric for that song. It didn't quite work. And very often, one of my next songs comes out of a failed attempt at finishing a different one. I've always thought there was a metaphor in there. <laughs> um, so I was reminded of this lyric, if the world was ending, you'd come over, right? And got home, started messing with it, you know, in relation to the earthquake, but just wasn't quite getting there. Remembered I had a session with Julia Michaels coming up, who at the time I'd never even met. So I saved the idea for Julia. Two weeks later, I, I met her in the studio. In between those two weeks, I was actually in Toronto with my family and met her at such a pivotal moment. There was so much going on told her that lyric. We wrote that song in two hours. You know, we fell very madly in love very fast. Here we are, 21 months later, living together. We can can see the love. love. Yeah, and we've been through a lot together between this song and, you know, a lot of personal things and, you know, living together pretty soon because of quarantine. And it's been been wild and beautiful. You know, if I can find a way to uh, convince my fellow Juno nominees, because you know, the only person who has more than five is The weekend, and then myself, Jesse Reyes, and Justin Bieber are, are tied for the second most nominations, which is just absurd. I should not be in a category with those people. But if I can convince those people that we should all collaborate on a song together, that would be the ultimate win. Better yeah. than any Juno. 
I imagine so. And I keep thinking, wow, how do you feel about being nominated along with all those amazing people? I've always had a sense of pride around how much of an impact Canadian musicians have made on international music. I've been bragging about that to people in Los Angeles from the moment I got here. And so to, in, in my own little way, you know, dipping a toe in, just, just arriving as a rookie to that club is an honor and something I'm really proud to be a part of and the legacy of artists who grew up in Canada. And you had mentioned um, earlier in the interview that you're in the process of recording an album. How has that process been, especially with the pandemic? The track list is decided, and so the album is done. I'm ready to share. I mean, there is so much of me in this album. It's, It's extremely divulgent and transparent and honest, but that's the only thing that I've ever wanted music to be. And I'm proud of uh, the body of work that I think represents myself and and all of the things I've always wanted to do with art. What do you miss most about Canada? What do you miss (laughs) about us? Do you miss Swiss Chalet? Do you miss, (laughs) I don't know, gummy bears or wine gums? What do you miss about Canada other than your your family, which I know that you you miss your dad a lot? Yeah, dad definitely comes first. Other than him... Coffee crisps are tight. See, uh, I told you, Christina. We were talking I knew it earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know it's like it's a hard question, but it's an easy question. No, it's honestly it's the communities that I miss the most. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's Monday night rye in Arbro, um, a, a artist, poet, you know, songwriter community event that you know fostered me as a young artist ten years ago and has only grown since then and. I admire that community so much. For those of you listening, if you're a young poet, songwriter, and you, and you want to feel loved by a community of incredible people, Rise Movement in, in Scarborough is the move. I miss uh, I miss supermarket Sundays at in Kensington Market. Oh. You know, they've been going without events like that. I don't know what becomes of my life as a musician. Not I miss the open mics at the Free Time Cafe. Like it's those communities are how I became myself as an artist. And as a person, honestly, I mean, most of my closest friends in Toronto are like that. And I miss those places and I miss that community. It's, it's, you know, what raised me. I think we've fallen in love with you, J.P. Sachs. (laughs) You are so lovely and we've taken up so much of your time and we know it's a busy day for you. I can't thank you enough. Christine and I, we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks and we've been so excited and I really appreciate it. Congratulations again on the nominations and the new album. Thank you so much for your time and send my love to the Woodbridge community. I will be be back as soon as I'm allowed. (laughs) Thank you. Your home team loves you. We appreciate it. Come closer, come closer. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com for the free podcast edition. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.